This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. So-called liberal Christianity satisfies neither man nor God. Recently, many Americans have become interested in the so-called Gilded Age. The term itself comes from a title of a little red book by novelist Mark Twain. Today, it is easy to get swept up in the lavish clothes and elaborate social rituals of that period. It is so different from the modern age where there are no rules and many believe that jeans and t-shirts are appropriate for any occasion. However, there are many products of the late 19th century that helped to destroy the society that created them. One of these is liberal Christianity. Those who industrialized the world were dissatisfied with traditional religious beliefs. They wanted a scientific religion to accompany their technological advances. They cared little about salvation after death. What they wanted was a religion that worked to improve society. This was the development that Pope St. Pius X criticized as modernism. From today's vantage point, the sainted Pope's criticism appeared to have fallen mostly on deaf ears. Modernism, unfortunately, appears to rule the day. Interestingly, as liberal Christianity grew, the Christianity part became detached. Today, many say that they are spiritual rather than religious. Interestingly, their so-called spirituality always fits beautifully into their no-limits lives without rules. We begin our podcast today with an essay by Mr. John Horvat. In it, he discusses why liberals love religion without consequences. We live in times of inconsequential religion. That means most people do not believe God acts in the real world. If he does act, it is considered a personal, somewhat subjective matter. Impacting major world events are believed to be outside God's sphere of activity. Likewise, inconsequential religion holds that what we do on earth has little effect upon God in heaven. We can do nothing that can offend, attract, or move God one way or the other. It is as if an invisible yet very real barrier separates church and state, human and divine, natural and supernatural, this world and the next. Religion without consequences fits perfectly with the secular and liberal world's way of reducing religion to irrelevance and empty sentiments. Liberals love it since it ends up erasing the notion of personal sin. Not all people follow this watered-down Christianity. Some believe that religion has real consequences. They believe in God's very active role and loving providence in shaping personal and public life. They also believe we can influence, move, and offend God. Thus, our actions can have good or bad consequences. There is nothing illogical or bizarre about consequential religion. Quite the contrary. Its adherents must only admit that a just and loving God is consistent. He rewards good and punishes evil. Thus, God acts in society, showering blessings and trials upon the faithful as a means for their sanctification. He can also confound the designs of the wicked. In fact, 
It is the only logical way to believe in a real God. A Christian who believes in a God that cannot act upon events worships a powerless God. A God who looks indifferently to his creature's good and bad actions is inconsistent. Thus, the logical Christian worships an almighty God who is engaged with his creation. This interaction between heaven and earth is the only coherent position about God. For this reason, consequential religion triggers the rage of liberal ideologues who want to keep religion irrelevant. They seek to avoid any public manifestation of it. Whenever an important person takes religion seriously, we can expect a firestorm of protest. Thus, a fire and brimstone storm erupted when it was revealed that Congressman Michael Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, spoke out about the country's dire situation using the language of consequential religion shortly before becoming Speaker of the House. He spoke of a time for judgment for a depraved America, invoking the memory of the destroyed biblical city of Sodom. He asked, Is God going to allow our nation to enter a time of judgment for our collective sins? In a prayer reflecting our ability to call upon his mercy, Mr. Johnson, now third in line for America's presidency, reflected that, quote, We repent for our sins individually and collectively, and we ask that you not give us the judgment we clearly deserve, unquote. These and other references to the consequences of the nation's sins clearly state that our actions offend God, and God can act upon us. Mr. Johnson also recognizes that sin is not only personal. Nations can collectively sin when they accept those things that go against God's law. Indeed, St. Augustine teaches that since nations are not judged in heaven toward an eternal destiny, they are rewarded and punished on earth for their collective good or evil actions. Those who want peace in society would do well to make that society practice virtue and avoid sin. Such are the considerations of the new speaker on consequential religion. His critics cannot think outside their liberal box and thus construct all sorts of nationalist conspiracies to explain Mr. Johnson's positions. Statements like this are nothing new. The Church has always taken this stand about God and His actions on earth. Such statements are consistent with Christianity. Ironically, liberals confronting religion with consequences give themselves the same powers they deny to God. They suppress this religion in the public square and prevent religious people from impacting public policy. Consequential religion strikes fear in those who tragically have no faith. When they see that some believe firmly in a loving and almighty God, they sense the power of religion, and they are the ones that suddenly become irrelevant. Liberal Christians or modernists, if you prefer that term, live with many internal contradictions. After all, what could possibly be the point of worshiping a powerless God? That is one reason, among many, that the so-called mainline Protestant denominations are declining so rapidly. 
Unfortunately, much of this sediment has also infected the Catholic Church. It masquerades itself under the phrase, the spirit of Vatican II. Many authors rush to the assistance of those afflicted souls. Unfortunately, their goal is to sell books. Therefore, many of these writers attempt to rewrite the same old tired ideas in modern and exciting words. This may briefly quiet the restless modern spirits, but does not share the timeless truths that those readers need. Mr. John Horvat writes about them in his essay, The Plight of Modernists Without Faith. The liberal order that has long sustained modernity is crumbling. It is no secret. Society is coming apart and fragmenting. People are concerned about the future. At the same time, Postmodernity and its politically correct culture is becoming ever more intolerant and tyrannical. In the face of such attacks, many scholars are coming to the defense of modernity as they try to breathe new life into worn-out liberalism. They are, however, stuck in the middle of a great contradiction. On the one hand, they admit that there must be a moral regeneration to transform society. On the other, Their secular liberal convictions will not allow them to have recourse to a Christian order that is needed to bring about this renewal. These defenders of modernity are like Romans fighting off barbarians inside a decadent society that needs a moral rebirth. Fighting off invasion is required, but is just part of the solution. Only something strong and inspiring outside the system can breathe new life into society. This was something the Romans themselves could not provide. Historically, the church provided that moral regeneration that gave rise to Christendom. A similar thing is happening today. An example of this awkward defense is the Jordan-Peterson phenomenon and others who are fighting off the cultural Marxism of our times. They have also called for moral regeneration. However, they remain fixed to their secular and modern roots that banished God from the public square. Such cases call to mind the story of a famous convert. In the middle of the last century, there was an English communist named Douglas Hyde who was the editor of London's The Daily Worker. He and his wife were exposed to the Catholic faith and ardently desired to convert. However, they did not believe in many mysteries of the faith, an obstacle that seemed insurmountable. They could only think in terms of the communist background. They resolved to act like Catholics, despite not believing in everything. They even decided to call themselves Catholics without faith until the happy moment when God granted them the gift of faith. That moment arrived, and Mr. Hyde later wrote his famous book, I Believed. Indeed, faith is a gratuitous gift of God, whereby one obtains the grace to believe that which the Church teaches without fully understanding. Such belief presupposes the action of grace in the soul. The defenders of modernity are in a hide-like situation of being attracted to a moral order needed to regenerate society, yet unable to think in terms of the faith. Thus, one could understand, for example, the perplexity of Jordan Peterson, 
who admits his problems in believing some Christian truths. However, he finds himself unable to go beyond the modern contradiction and thus tries to explain these truths in modern terms. Without the action of grace in their souls, Peterson and others like him will always be modernists without faith. Another defender of modernity, Jonah Goldberg, begins his latest book, The Suicide of the West, with the provocative affirmation, There is no God in this book. Despite sympathy for the idea of God, his solution assumes the non-existence of God in the public square and relies upon the exhausted ideas of the Enlightenment that he thinks can still breathe new life into a polarized nation. And so it is with many modernists without faith of our days. They are exposed to the horrors of our postmodern decadence and react against them. They defend the modern order that they know, citing the authors they have studied, Darwin, Freud, Locke, Smith, and others. They might even believe in God as a positive force in keeping order or profess a personal faith. However, they remain rooted in the crumbling Enlightenment idea that God must be a retired watchmaker forever banished from the public square. They do not know how to call God back from exile. They do not know how to implore that powerful supernatural aid that is the only way out of the present mess. What is missing from their worldview is the idea of a provident God who intervenes in history. Indeed, throughout history, people of all times and places have believed in some intelligent being who governs the universe and directs the course of affairs of men with purpose and benevolence. The presence of this adoring action found in the Creator is what we call divine providence. Modernists do not like the idea of providence since they associate it with dependence, fate, or predestination. If only they could understand that a true theology of providence is ever mindful of man's free will. God requires the intelligent cooperation of his creatures to make use of the resources his providence put at our disposal. God assists us in discerning how we might utilize capacities and talents. He grants his grace and supernatural gifts to aid in this cooperation that allows us to not only perfect, but surpass our nature. Far from inhibiting the human action, providence empowers individuals and societies to advance toward their proper end. The defense against the postmodern tyranny would gain much if the modernists without faith could break out of the narrow-minded conception of a secular society that excludes this cooperation with God's grace and goodness. Perhaps God in his providence could illuminate them so that, like Douglas Hyde, they might believe. Together, we might then call back God from the exile and implore the supernatural aid needed to regenerate the nation and overcome and convert today's neo-barbarians. The idea that Mr. Horvat discussed, that of being a modernist without faith, is impossible. As such, 
It might be described by a short yet strong word, hoax. In 1971, the founder of the TFP movement drew a connection back to a similar untruth, which he called the hoax of atheistic communism. In this essay, Professor Plinio repeatedly uses a word that is uncommon today. The word is heresarch. It simply means the founder of heresy. This article was originally published in Portuguese on March 14, 1971. It has been translated and adapted for publication without author's revision. History is the tutor of life, said Cicero. Nothing is more useful for the understanding of certain of the liveliest aspects of modern reality than the study of analogous situations of the past. Heresies, as is well known, rose up one after the other during the whole 20 centuries of the history of the Catholic Church. The most recent of them is progressivism, an ill-disguised revival of the modernism St. Pius X condemned at the beginning of the 20th century. The public at large has vague, and not infrequently inexact, notions about the way these different heretical currents broke away from the Church. For example, the majority of people imagine that Luther's break with the Church took place in four stages. 1. He elaborated a doctrine contrary to Catholic doctrine. 2. Then realizing the ideological contrast, he revolted, broke away from the church, and set up an evangelical sect. 3. As a consequence, the church threatened him with excommunication unless he abjured his errors. 4. Luther persisted in his doctrinal position, was excommunicated, and the break was consummated. Thus, Luther supposedly left the church because he wished, when he wished, and as he wished. He left her like the prodigal son left his father's house, openly, frankly telling his father ahead of time. History teaches us, however, that in Luther's case, as in the case of those other great heresarchs, the process of separation was quite a bit more complex. The reason is that certain heresarchs, perhaps most of them, did not by any means want to go roaring out of the church with a slam of the door. They were far too diplomatic and subtle to select such a simple-minded way to achieve their goals. They chose to stick to the church like a cyst to covertly spread heresy among the faithful. If this system worked, the heresarchs would be able to infiltrate all the structures of the church from top to bottom. For that reason, albeit aware that their thinking was incompatible with Catholicism, the founders of heresy tried to formulate their maxims in terms seemingly reconcilable with orthodox theology. Had they not employed such precautions, they would, in fact, have been easily identified and condemned as heretics. All Catholics would have turned against them and their doctrines. The heretics' process of infiltration would have halted ipso facto, and they would have run the risk of taking with them no more than a handful of apostates. From this standpoint, it is not difficult to grasp the milestones in the most subtle heretics' process of separation from the Church. 1. The heresarch engenders his heterodox doctrine and gives it formation that at first sight looks orthodox. 2. The heresarch begins circulating his camouflaged error and attracting unwary followers, whom he gathers in groups controlled by his enthusiasts. 
three. In secrecy, his followers are taught the stark error, but they are advised to spread it in a veiled manner. Four. As the new sect begins to spread, voices are raised among the genuine Catholics denouncing the new heresy. Five. Its adepts defend themselves by claiming that they are orthodox and are being vilely calumniated. And six. The Church examines the controversy, declares the new doctrine heretical, and excommunicates those who follow it. So there is a class of heresarchs and heretics who don't rush out of the Church, but wish to stay inside, fishing in muddy waters. It is necessary to root them out by sheer force through the application of spiritual penalties. The peculiar nature of these sectarians explains why their process of separation from the church sometimes does not even end in excommunication. Once the heresy has been condemned, it appears to have died. But within a little while, it springs up again inside the church. For example, once Arianism, the famous heresy of the 4th century, had been condemned, the Arian sect fell apart. But soon afterwards, it sprang up again within the Catholic ranks using expressions that camouflage doctrines less radical than Arius's, but inspired in his thinking. Thus arose so-called semi-Arianism. Consequently, it was necessary for the Church to carry out a new effort to detect, define, and condemn this new heretical snare, uprooting the cancer that had again sprung up within her. What is the highest ambition of a veiled heresy? Why do its leaders hope for this tactic of infiltration? It is not simply to recruit many followers among the faithful. It is to bring priests, bishops, cardinals, and even, if they could manage to, the Pope, to their side. What extremes can't the heretics' dreams of empire reach? The process of the formation of communism was quite different. Its founder was not a Catholic. Its adepts were recruited among people who never had faith or who had lost it entirely. Whenever the Marxist sect would make new recruits, they would openly break with the church. It seems evident, however, that in our days, communism is changing its tactics and trying to imitate, at least to a large degree, the subtle maneuver of the veiled heresies. In other words, Marxism now takes on the airs of a sacristan, endeavoring to take root in the church in order to conquer her. Realizing that it has failed in its hundred-year struggle against the church from the outside, it now tries to kill her from the inside out. How is this done? In a thousand ways. I don't have enough space here to describe this immense maneuver in all of its aspects. I will limit myself to giving only one characteristic feature of it. So we have come to the hoax of atheistic communism. The expression is legitimate. It is found in the pontifical documents. It is based on the fact that communism is an extensive fabric of errors of which atheism is the gravest and most marked. So it is logical for it to be commonly designated as atheistic communism. Now, however, Catholic circles imbued with communist influences have begun to interpret the expression capriciously. 
If the popes condemn atheistic communism, they argue, it is only because it is atheistic. Therefore, if there were a non-atheistic current of communism, the church would obviously not have the least objection to it. This subterfuge, for that is what it is, amounts to affirming that the popes never condemned anything in communism but its atheism. Now, reading the documents of Leo XIII alone is enough to see that this is entirely false. The Church, in fact, also condemns the political, social, and economic tenets of communism. An authentic Catholic cannot accept them, even though they be presented without any connection with atheism. So, for instance, to affirm the orthodoxy of a communist-inspired program of social reform, including divorce, free love, and complete promiscuity in sexual relations, is blatantly opposed to Catholic morality. This is so even when the advocates of these reforms frequent the sacraments. What I say about sexual promiscuity holds likewise for collective property, that is, an economic system that excludes individual property. If anyone says that he believes in God but desires the implantation of such a system, he is against the church. What does communist propaganda gain from this doctrinal shell game played with the expression atheistic communism? It manages to create in innumerable Catholics the illusion that, setting atheism aside, they may be communist in every other aspect. Now this is a perfect imposture. To the extent that this treacherous maneuver goes on unobstructed, we shall have communism deeply rooted in Catholic circles like we formerly had nascent Arianism and Protestantism. In the face of this panorama, authentic Catholics are horror-struck. The communists laugh. Because who will root them out of Catholic circles if the current tendency in the church not to excommunicate anyone continues. This concludes, So-called liberal Christianity satisfies neither man nor God. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2024 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.